It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. All right, well, I am really really looking forward to this conversation today because it all started when I read an email titled, It's Time for a Clean Sweep. This came from our guest, Corbett Barr, who is somebody's that I've been following, somebody's work is what I meant to say, somebody's work I've been following for many years. In fact, I was trying last night as I was reflecting on this upcoming recording, I was looking back to see if I could trace the history of when I started listening to a podcast called The Fizzle Show and studying the work of this company called Fizzle. And I was able to track it back to 2015. I was reflecting on some episodes I listened to and I was knee deep in studying entrepreneurship, small business, and developing my work and and thinking about where I wanted to go as an entrepreneur And so I've been following Corbett's work ever since. And I got this email in October 2020 that said he had deleted everything on social media. So it immediately caught my attention. He said he was calling it spring cleaning or maybe a midlife crisis and starting over in a way, deleting many blog posts, side projects, videos, podcasts, and so on, because he was reevaluating how he existed online. And at the very end of the email, it said, does this resonate with you? Have you considered something similar? Now, I have in my own way, but this really reminded me of some things that Jason has been going through. So I immediately forwarded it to Jason. And I'm like, look, here's an example of someone that I really appreciate and admire his work. And look what he's doing. And then it occurred to me that perhaps we could invite Corbett on the show to talk about it. And here he is. So this is something I've really been looking forward to. We're going to be talking about digital house cleaning. And one of the phrases in another email that Corbett wrote recently was that he wants to make digital room for who he's become and who he intends to be. And we talk about this so much on the show. So this is a wonderful thing, Corbett, because even though it's very familiar to us, I feel like not enough people share these moments of their life. So I'm deeply grateful that you wrote that email and even more so that you came on today to talk more in depth about it. Thank you so much for having me on. I looked forward to this opportunity to chat with both of you ever since we scheduled it, just because I know that you like to go deep and kind of focus on the mental processes and and the thoughts and, and feelings behind what we're all working towards. So this should be fun. I hope so. If not fun, interesting, right? There you go. My first question is for you, Jason. How did you feel when I sent this over to you? Did you resonate with it immediately? Did you check it out? Like, What has this been like for you, given that it's very similar to a process you're going through on your own? Well, when Whitney forwarded me your, I suppose, public declaration, Corbett, it was was like a, oh, hell yes. Like There was a thing in me of witnessing through your process and you know, a very open and vulnerable public share of 
someone who finally did what I've been dreaming about. And I'm sure you've probably received, I have to imagine hundreds of emails, God knows even thousands, uh, probably reflecting a similar sentiment. It, it was almost like a crescendo of a conversation I've been having for so many months with not only Whitney, our dear friend Adam Yasmin, who is really at the forefront of a lot of things in digital wellness. And, you know, reading digital minimalism, watching the minimalists, you know, watching the social dilemma and all of the kind of compound conversations. When I received your email, it was like, ah, this is fascinating. Like I want to dig in this man's brain because it really did reflect back to me something I have been considering doing, which to be honest, the reason I haven't done it is because it kind of frightens the hell out of me. And so I guess the, you know, my first question to you, Corbett, is as we dive deeper into sort of your mental process behind this, why take this tack which is sort of wiping the slate clean. And what are the attendant fears, if any, or misgivings, or, or what were the what was the resistance you had to push through to finally just do it? Mm. Well, I'm so glad that I decided to do this publicly because for a long time I had just been wrestling with these thoughts and feelings in my mind about this sense of digital baggage and a divergence between who I have become and maybe how I was being represented by all of the things that I had published over the past 10 or 12 years that I've really been active online. And instead of just continuing that conversation with myself, I decided at some point, this might be interesting to other people. And maybe if I've been wrestling with this so much, Maybe other people are feeling this way as well. And then, of course, you know, if you pay attention to the zeitgeist, you can sense that there's a lot of trepidation, concern about social media, especially, and talk about depression and all kinds of other things that it causes for people. And I had wrestled with this for a while. In fact, I every time I opened up my social media feeds, if I checked in on Instagram, especially, I just didn't find myself feeling better afterwards than I did when I started. And I set it aside for a while. And then I came back to it. And I, I let everyone know last year that I had been going through a bit of depression and that I felt like social media just wasn't the place for me to spend time if I was feeling that way. But I also started to wonder if the, the social media wasn't causing it on its own. And so I can't say that I have all the answers, but I decided that for me, it was time to wipe the slate clean. And in terms of fears that I felt in doing so, first of all, I knew that, especially with social media, all of that stuff that's out there can be recreated. I mean, I had tens of thousands of posts you know, and most of those just came out quickly. It's not as if I had spent a lot of time on them. And does the world really care what I was thinking about eating 10 years ago? And not that all of my stuff was superfluous like that, but a lot of it was. And I just recognized that it felt at this point like it was holding me back more than it was doing me any good. Yeah. I mean, it's so relatable. And I think a lot of us pause because we're so, our lives are, are interwoven with social media, especially for those of us who have been doing work online. And I know for me, it's been at least 10 years 
of believing that I had to do social media, right? It's studying all these different tactics and seeing this as a marketing avenue and telling other people like, this is the way to go. And you know, if you're not everywhere, then you're not reaching enough people. And I think that can lead to you feeling like, well, if I'm not on social media, then will I even be communicating with people anymore? I mean, fortunately, we do have email. And and actually, Corbett, that is how I found out about everything that you're doing. I didn't find out about that through social media. So that's another great reminder is email is such an, a powerful communication tool and one that I actually much prefer to social media, to be honest. I feel like it's easier to reach people through email and you know, you're know, you kind of cutting through a lot more of the clutter and, and not having to deal with some algorithm, even though, of course, newsletters come with their own set of challenges and, and can often be ignored or in spam or whatever. But I just much prefer that as a communication method. So I'm really grateful that you sent that email because I probably wouldn't have seen it otherwise. And I think that in itself is a reflection on do we really need social media as much as we think we do? Yeah. And the interesting thing about that to single out email is just from a, a technical standpoint that email is a free and open protocol that was written 40 something years ago at this point. And social media is not. Social media comes with, especially, you know, I, I'm sure that you two have seen the social dilemma and and recognize that behind the scenes, there is a lot of manipulation happening to make sure that we are spending as much time as possible on the platform. And from a wellness standpoint, it's not as if they care whether or not social media is being helpful to you, making you feel good. As long as you're glued to it, that's what matters to the platforms. Whereas email doesn't have some people pulling the strings behind the scenes. So I think that's really interesting to note. And also that if you think about podcasting, for example, it's another open protocol. You create audio, put it out there in the world. And if people want to listen to it, they can. As an individual creator, of course, you can put ads in it or try to get people to take action in some way. But it's not as if the platforms have a whole lot of intermediary between you and your listeners. And of course, your listeners can pull your feed from any one of a number of different places. So that idea of open protocols matters. And I would hope that at some point there will be some sort of decentralized open social media protocol and I know there have been attempts at it, but it would just be really interesting if instead of having to worry about Facebook or Twitter trying to manipulate us, if instead we were able to reach people in a way that doesn't have to be as direct as email, uh, but again, over some sort of free and open protocol. My question, I guess, on a, well, I have a lot of questions coming up simultaneously, but the immediate one, Corbett, is I, I think in a lot of spaces entrepreneurial spaces, I've heard some rhetoric about, well, you know, what about your brand equity? And what about all the goodwill you've built with your community over the years? And if you've been an active blogger and social media content creator to potentially delete one's quote, social equity or brand equity by removing content from our feeds, there's been conversations I've had where people are like, well, but yeah, but you've put all this work and you've been, you've been doing this 15 years, you know, and you have all these hundreds of videos or, you know, hundreds of blog posts and and seeing what you've been doing, was there any hesitance for you 
from an entrepreneurial perspective, looking at this as like, oh, this might affect my brand image. It might affect, affect my online equity. It might affect my social proof. Were any of those considerations for you? Or did you just kind of like zoom right past those things and just be like, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to do this. No, <laughs> I'm, and I'm usually not the kind to just jump quickly. I ruminate a lot, think about things before I take action. And in this case, on the social media side, again, I felt like this could all be recreated. It's, it's not that big a deal. And I didn't delete my actual profiles because I'm not exactly sure what I want to do with social media and what I want my relationship to be there. So instead of canceling my accounts, I simply deleted all the content, which leaves me with some of that social proof. You know, I've still got the connections and the numbers and verification and all that kind of stuff. So I can go back to it if I want to. And on the blogging side and, you know, videos and podcasts and so on, I'm trying to really just do housekeeping. You know, with housekeeping, it doesn't mean that you throw everything away and start over. Or even with minimalism, it's not as if you live with absolutely nothing. You're just more curatorial in your decisions about what to keep. And I have been reviewing old posts, trying to ask myself if they're still valid, if they're still useful. And then also looking in some cases at analytics to say, well, which posts are still actually driving traffic? Which ones are linked to? Which ones are the search engines still representing? And in those cases, I have been keeping some things I'd say on my personal blog, I ended up deleting 95% or so and and really just kept about 10 good posts left there. And I archived everything as well. So if I need to go back and, and look at things, if I need a reference of some sort, I have those personally. But at, at the end of the day, you know, the the thing, obviously, any good work that you've put out there, if you've written a book or something, that's that's great. It's it's out in the world and that's something you can point to and reflect on. But really, your relationships and your reputation are the important things. And those aren't made through some social media connection. It's not because someone is following you. It's because you've made an impact on someone. It's because you have said something or produced something that someone else found valuable. It's because maybe you had an actual conversation with someone at some point. And so even though I removed all of that stuff and I'm now living naked without any social media posts out there, as Whitney said, when I sent that email saying that this is what I was doing, so many people reached out to me, including new people that I had maybe never heard of, but who had followed me for quite a while and people that I knew from, you know, IRL conversations at conferences and other things, and also people that I had just maybe known online in various places over the years. So many people reached out to me over email, and it just really made me realize that the connections that you've made and the relationships and the reputation that you bring, that's where the value is. And that's not contained in really any of the archive of work that you've produced online. Absolutely. I mean, that is such a, a huge point of all of this and something I've noticed myself is we can get so caught up in the numbers. We can get caught up on how we do our social media posts. And one thing I'm curious about for you, Corbett, is, is how it's been, how your relationship with social media has been up to now and your perception on it. Because for us, for better or for worse, so much of our, our careers, for lack of a better word, is 
based on social media, you know, like, I mean, I, I started with the blog, but the next step was YouTube, Facebook, Twitter back in 2009. And it felt like, if without social media, what would I be? Who would I be? You know, and that's part of the big challenge for me. And Jason, I, I believe it's about the same. YouTube was a huge part of his career, the reason he had his TV show. It felt like if it weren't for those things, would we have had any of these opportunities, right? So it becomes more like if we release all of this, will we even matter anymore? You know, like what what impact do we have? And thank goodness we started this podcast because even when you were talking about the difference between, you know, email and podcasting versus social media, I also noticed the energy behind it is so different. With the podcast, it is even on the hardest days, even when we're tired, we still show up without much resistance versus when I'm tired, the last thing I want to do is social media. And the absolute last thing I want to do is make a YouTube video. But I am mostly thrilled to do this podcast, no matter how I feel. And so the the energy behind it, which also leads me to another subject I want to touch on at some point. Since you use the phrase digital housekeeping, I also think about the life-changing magic of tidying up and and uh, the Marie Kondo method and how you can tune into that energy of what brings you joy, whether it's what platform should I be posting on, or in your case, Corbett, what posts do I keep? What it Not only is it about the analytics of what's driving traffic, but I imagine as you were going through your whole history of content creation, you were probably thinking a lot of like, what did you actually like? And what do you feel proud of versus what did you do because you felt like you had to or because it was trendy or because you thought it was going to bring you traffic? Yeah, I love that. And and really, there's two important conversations here in in what you just said. The first being, how do you relate to social media and how do you reconcile the fact that a lot of the opportunities that have come to any of us who are creators online, a lot of those opportunities came because of social media. And they present an incredible platform for reaching people. And the fact is, the majority of the world's population now is spending time on some form of social media. So without them, it's a lot more difficult to reach. And this has really been a revolution for people who want to build an audience, who want to build connections with people all over the globe, and who want to share their work without having to worry about traditional gatekeepers. Because back in the day, if you wanted to get published or you wanted to have a TV show, you had to convince people at a network or at a publishing house in order to line that up. And now any individual can start publishing. And if your content's good and you're smart about the way you use those platforms, you can find yourself with an enormous audience that wouldn't have been accessible to you just 20 years ago. So on the social media side, I think that as creators, we have to distinguish between being a consumer versus being a creator in our relationship to social media. If you watch a film like the social dilemma, or read a book like 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, you are consuming that from the consumer's standpoint. Those movies and books are really aimed at how social media affects you as a consumer, as a person who's just passively reading or participating, but not for any 
bigger, broader means necessarily. They didn't really address in those pieces what it means to be a creator and why social media can be so important to us. So I had found myself at various times over the past few years really not recognizing the difference between those two and blurring the lines between them and getting kind of sucked in to social media because of all the manipulation that happens and because of just human insecurities and the things that social media, I think, makes us feel and want to do, I found myself kind of passively consuming and starting to feel maybe bad about myself in some ways if someone else seemed to be living a more amazing, more successful, more rich and full life on social media, because that's what a lot of people publish these days. There's a lot of this, look at me, my life is so amazing kind of stuff going on there. So it made me realize as a producer that, first of all, I don't want to be just publishing that sort of stuff because I don't want that to be people's relationship with me. I don't want them to to feel bad about themselves because of something I'm doing that I say is amazing because of the way that I've presented myself on social media. But also it's made me realize as a producer that my relationship to social media doesn't have to be one of passively consuming and you know using it in the way that most people do i can use social media simply as a channel to reach people publishing things that i think are worthwhile and valuable but that doesn't mean that i have to spend time on the platform itself in fact there are ways to publish to most of the platforms without having to have an app installed on your phone in fact i removed all of the apps, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything from my phone, and yet I can still publish from my web browser. And that means I don't have to worry about checking it in bed. I don't have to worry about notifications or anything. And I can kind of jump in and jump out. So my relationship in the future to social media, I have a feeling if I continue to publish there, will be one of really just trying to gain the benefits of using it as a creator with trying not to get sucked into it as a consumer, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense, Corbett. I also am curious with this awareness you created around the level of passive consumption you were engaging in. And perhaps you you had alluded to the comparison trap and looking at everyone's lives with you know their relationships and their cars and their watches and their houses and, and their bodies and kind of this seemingly never-ending stream of the same kind of tropes being parroted over and over again, certainly I think in the entrepreneurial community. What did you notice in terms of not only the awareness around passive consumption, but as you started to make this shift of more intentional usage and then now you know, deleting and sort of reimagining your, your online identity, if you will, or, or even your messaging, what kind of effect did that have on your mental health? You talked a little bit about depression that's something we talk extensively here on the podcast about is you know the effect of anthropology society social media on our collective mental health so in this whole process what what's been that journey for you like in terms of your depression and your mental health so last year as i mentioned i had found myself just kind of increasingly depressed and stuck i felt sort of boxed in in my relationship to my work and my relationship to my digital self. 
And I found that it was worsened the more that I tuned in to social media and the more that I felt like I had to keep up with what a lot of very active people will tell you in the digital realm about, you know, as, as Whitney said, being everywhere about, you know, publishing, you see some people with so much energy and so much activity, you start to feel like, well, I just have to do that. If, if I want to play in this digital realm, that's part of the cost of doing business. And that, that really bummed me out. And I, I had to, I had to go through some things personally. I, I saw a therapist for the first time in my life. I had to really take a step back from my work in general and kind of just keep the lights on, but not do a whole lot that was new. And when I came back at some point to social media, I started out and I wish I could share the post with you, but unfortunately I've deleted all of them. So I can't do that. I'll just have to tell you about it. I came back and I posted something about the depression that I had felt and how it was in some ways related to this digital revolution that we've gone through and, and, and with social media. And I posted it on Instagram and, and I got by far the most engagement I had ever gotten on a post because I think a lot of people resonated with it. They said, yes, I've been feeling this. And also because when you open up and bear your soul and say things on these platforms that most people aren't saying, especially if it's not something that you're prone to say, then people really connect with it, the, the humanity of it, opening up and telling people that, look, I haven't been active here because I just have not felt like this is a healthy relationship. And a lot of people reacted to that. However, at that time, I didn't have a good plan for changing my relationship to it. I just, at that stage, was admitting out loud that it had caused me some mental strife. And when I went back to social media, I basically just fell into the same old patterns again. And those patterns uh, on some platforms were really just sharing photos, I guess, to let my friends and connections know that my life was going well. You know, pictures of you doing fun stuff and trying to look enthused about it. And I just found myself kind of getting deeper and deeper into that hole again. And so this year, when I finally got some headspace, I love what Whitney said about this Marie Kondo and what sparks joy. I started to actually ask myself, why did I assume that I had to participate in the way that everyone else does or the gurus tell you that you should participate? And why did I have to carry around all of this digital baggage when a lot of it just wasn't bringing me any joy anymore? So I think there are a lot of parallels there and there is some magic in tidying up your digital world because when I finally did it, I just felt so free in the idea that I could chart my course going forward. I didn't have to just follow someone else's guidelines or patterns. None of these platforms are even all that old. Like, why do we assume we have to use them in a certain way? For example, why do we assume that just because you publish something, it has to live out there forever? There's this like reticence to delete old stuff because it's supposed to be some kind of like magic archive of everything that you were thinking at the time. 
So once I finally did that, I just felt really free. I felt like I finally had a blank slate in front of me. And it reminded me in a way of the feeling that you used to get when you were finally leaving a job and maybe you had, you know, several weeks between jobs, or at least your new job was going to be a whole new set of problems. And you almost felt like your old job was not your worry anymore. And these days, none of us really truly move between jobs anymore because we have these online personas. And even if you're in a career, you probably maintain that online persona. So you never really get that that freeing feeling of being completely between projects. And I, I finally felt that again once I deleted everything. And and it was it was magical for a while. And and it still feels amazing and like I have all the possibilities in the world. Wow. It's just so wonderful to hear this perspective. And and funny enough, I literally as you as you were speaking, I looked up Paul Jarvis, who we mentioned, I, I think before we started recording, because your website, Corbett reminds me of his with the minimalism and and just like it's just text on a white background and i remember when i first saw i think it was paul's website years ago or whenever it was maybe it wasn't that long uh when i first saw it i thought oh my gosh like you can make a website without with just text on it you know <laughs> like i had this mentality for as many of us did probably by influenced by people like marie forleo of like, it has to be really snazzy and pictures everywhere. And it's got to have this modern template. And, you know, it's all about like being eye catching. And as I've been working on my own transition and started a new website relatively recently, I wanted to go for this minimalism. I wanted to have that blank slate that you're talking about, but I felt self-conscious and I started to think, are people going to come to my website and be like, oh, it's so simple and this is boring. Like, Why doesn't it look like all the other flashy female entrepreneurs out there? You know, And I, I found myself reflecting on all these fears about my digital appearance. And then that ties into all these fears I have about my physical appearance and showing up online and worried that people are going to make all these... Um, assumptions or judgments or whatever, or not like me as much based on how old I look or how pretty I look or how many followers I have and all of these like big fears. Um, And before we dive into that further, though, I will say that right on air, I feel a little in shock because I just found out that Paul Jarvis completely wiped everything that he's doing too. So for the listener, we have a whole episode with Paul. And now I kind of want to have him back. I wish he was part of this conversation. He deleted his Twitter too. And I mean, it was probably just a day or two ago, or uh, maybe in the past week that I was interacting with him on Twitter. And now it's gone. It, it, It doesn't exist. Wow. I guess it sounds like you didn't know that either. And then I found an in his email newsletter that he ended his newsletter too. <laughs> I mean, talk about hitting the, what's the term you, you use, Jason? Not the uh, eject button, but like the detonation button, I think. Yeah, where you, yeah, yeah, you just detonate all of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like what he did. And he said he's been writing his newsletter for eight years and he doesn't feel like he has anything else he wants to say. He just needs a break. So he's focused on his company, Fathom Analytics, and that's it. And I just think, wow, between the two of you, Corbett and Paul, it's really like 
inspiring because I I had really appreciate both of your work and I've been following for such a long time to see see that that's happening with more than just you, Corbin. I mean, not to say that you're the only one that's ever done this, but but uh, it's just so... I wonder if this is going to become a big trend. Do you think so? And and has that kind of been a, a feeling that you've been getting from the responses you've received to your announcement? And Paul is amazing, by the way. And he has written so many things that have impacted me over the years. And I have no doubt that he will eventually produce some sort of content again in the future. But I think we all have to decide on what's important to us and and how the way that we live our digital lives consumes so much of our attention and time that it may not be productive to what our overall broad goals are. And so for Paul right now, you know, building a business is his important thing. And he recognized that writing a newsletter wasn't necessarily helping that. That's that's incredible. But of course, Paul has books out there and and you can read about The Company of One is an amazing book that he published just last year, I believe. I would imagine, yes, that there will be some sort of trend here. Given that people reached out en masse, I shared a picture of my inbox after I shared the first email or sent the first email to my list about starting over. People wrote me, I was getting multiple emails a minute for a little while there and it was great. It was really great to hear from people and to respond to them. However, what I don't want to happen is for people to blindly decide to just hit the detonate button because it's become something that is trendy necessarily. What I hope instead would happen is that the trend is in each of us taking a step back and considering our relationship to our digital selves and where we want to be spending time and how we want to make it useful to us. And not that we all just necessarily do the same thing. I think it's amazing and freeing to realize that, wait a second, you you can just delete things? I, I didn't think. And to see someone like Paul, who has built up such a following and such credibility over the years, do that it just makes you wonder like how much value is really here if someone like that can can move on so quickly but i think there is likely still plenty of room for various platforms to be useful to different people so i i really hope that there's some thoughtfulness here you know whitney you brought up minimalism digital minimalism which is another interesting concept and that doesn't necessarily mean being totally unplugged or killing everything. It just, again, means being thoughtful and so on. And seeing someone like like Paul, or if you recall from a while back, another Canadian friend from the digital world, Justin Jackson, had written a, an article that he called Words. And really, he he published a an article or a blog post that didn't have any formatting at all. It basically just used the default font, default colors, and centered his text and and he made the point that this is a web page and you are reading it and the fact that it doesn't have frilly current flashy design on it doesn't impact the fact that you're reading it and the fact that I'm actually making a connection with you over this page and that was one of the first times that I recognized that you could have a very minimalist presence online and still have an impact on people. I think it's interesting, Whitney, that you brought up the difference 
maybe between male and female entrepreneurs and the way that we present ourselves online and all of the worry about judgments that people are making based on our appearance and how we feel like we have to present ourselves in certain ways. And there's probably something interesting to dig into there. But I'll say that even as a male entrepreneur or as a a male person who is participating in social media, I really often feel the same about judgments being made about my appearance or or just about me and my physical presence in general. And I think that was a lot of what I didn't enjoy about Instagram, especially because it's such a visual medium. And I think that's something that I can, on podcasts and in written content, just completely ignore for a while. I can write whatever I want. And for some reason, the same feeling of judgments aren't there. And I guess it's because it's all about my thoughts or my voice and not about who I am, what background I come from, what my physical appearance is, and so on. So there's also something, you know, in terms of the mediums that bring us joy, not just the individual posts or the things that we've written or produced, but the specific mediums that bring us joy. And just because one social media platform or type doesn't make you feel good doesn't mean that another might not. And it also doesn't mean that you might not be able to use a certain platform in a way that doesn't make you feel so self-conscious or prone to the comparison game. I think on a maybe more, I don't even know if I want to call it a spiritual level, but maybe a, a sense of the separation of the essence of who we are versus sort of these external identifying factors. Like what you're saying, Corbett, seems to me at least to be a process of disidentification on a certain level, right? Of my numbers are not me. My Instagram following is not me. My newsletter list is not me. My website is not me. If we even want to go into it, like this physical body may not be me, depending on your spiritual beliefs. I mean, to me, there's a level of this that goes beyond just sort of goes beyond, you know, the, the simple mechanistic action of like, I'm freeing myself. To me, it's like we talk about shedding the skin. We use a lot of analogies here of this idea of, you know, the chrysalis of a a caterpillar turning into a butterfly or a snake shedding its skin and regenerating itself. There seems to be, to me at least, you know, a, a deeply spiritual element to everything you're talking about because it seems that you're getting maybe closer to the essence. I think in, in one of your blog posts, you you talked about making room for who you've become and who you intend to be, which I think is beautiful and simple and so eloquent. But I guess if we don't let go of the old stuff, we don't get to proverbially speaking, shed that skin and become the new version of ourselves. Absolutely. And and I think you're you're dead on here in terms of the the spiritual sense. If if you think about Eastern philosophies and trying to be present in the current moment and the way that they talk about the ego and how damaging the ego can be and and how finding the ability to set that aside especially if you're trying to you know become better at meditating if you think about social media what it's done is it has taken our ego from being something that we had some control over because it was mostly an internal conversation with ourselves about how we felt our standing in the world was or or what it was it has taken that and really turned it inside out so that now our ego is splattered all over the web because people can see what our standing is on various platforms whether you 
have a certain number of followers, whether your content is getting liked a certain number of times, whether you have that special check mark next to your name, all of that becomes this ego in the world effect where now instead of being able to turn it off and have a nice weekend by yourself where at least you're not having those egoistic thoughts, now you can't really turn that off because these judgments are happening about you regardless of whether you are in front of someone because someone is out there judging your digital self. So absolutely, from a spiritual or, or even just a, an existential or a human standpoint, I don't think we have grappled at all with what this is doing to us. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one on the page of all social media is evil and we all just need to, to dump it and leave. I, I think that there may be some sort of happy medium. And again, I definitely believe that there are benefits for us as creators, but we have to consider our relationships to it from not only a business standpoint and a wellness standpoint, but also as you're saying, Jason, probably from a spiritual standpoint. You mentioned earlier about this sort of kind of jump in, jump out strategy that you've been doing with social media, where you you post from a computer instead of an app on your phone, you release the content, you jump out, and you're not doing this sort of passive consumption you talked about. What are some other things you've been experimenting with to re-landscape, I suppose, a, a for lack of a better word, a healthier relationship to social media and content creation? Like in this immediate point in your process, where are you at with sort of the reinvention of that relationship and how are you engaging it in, in maybe more, I don't know if healthier is the right word, maybe a more balanced way? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm in the experimentation phase for sure. And that phase is going to involve me trying various things and and seeing how it feels. I, I'm not going to simply decide on a direction and and move forward without evaluating along the way. Instead, I'm going to try out some different ways of interacting on various platforms and notice what it does to me and how it creates and fosters connections and delivers value to the people, the audience that I care about. So the first part of that process has been really stripping everything back to the bare minimum. So that meant, you know, first of all, deleting all of my content, but also deleting my bio so that I'm not saying that I'm anyone or anything in particular. And then as Whitney noticed, it meant that I stripped all of the design elements off of my website to the point where it is literally just dark text on a white page centered on the screen. And that doesn't mean that website is going to look like that forever, but I wanted to hit the reset button in a lot of different places, everywhere that I could online. And that meant really just trying to still have a foothold and still have a presence there, but not letting anything from you know, my photos to my design to the archive of my work say anything about who I intend to be in the future so that I can just work from first principles and move forward from that clean slate. So, you know, it, it I knew that I wanted to publish. I wanted to at least tell people that I was starting over, 
but I didn't want to communicate anything other than those words. And so, you know, that's where I just stripped everything down to the bare minimum. And it turns out that it feels amazing to have a super minimal website. And I think that that will be one of my principles going forward. Maybe not as minimal as it is now, but certainly less than those flashy websites that you feel so many entrepreneurs have with amazing photos of themselves with, you know, headshots and so on. Because as soon as you publish that, you don't feel great about it anymore anyway. And you, and, and then so much of it focuses your attention on your appearance and your website's appearance, as opposed to your thoughts and the value that you bring to the world. And the other side of it that's interesting too is is that I think if we start to tune in and going back again to this idea of what sparks joy as Marie Kondo kind of taught me, <laughs> which is really incredible, that book, even though it, it, it was really trendy and sometimes I'm skeptical of things like that, like, oh, how good could it be if everybody loves it? <laughs> it kind of t- turns and ties into this whole conversation too. But I mean, that book is popular for a reason. It's, it's really remarkable, this simple idea of, of thinking like, does this bring me joy? Does this spark joy within me? And on the other hand, you can also notice when something makes you feel tight and makes it feel like you're forcing something. And I feel a sense of relief when I participate in minimalism and I see other people doing minimalist work. I also feel a sense of permission. And I think that was the other thing that resonated with me when I saw your email, Corbett. And also when I look at your Instagram right now, I feel a sigh of relief. I feel a sense of curiosity too, which I think is kind of cool. Like just you writing, I'm starting over and then linking to your website. Like how could you not click over to that? It's it's fascinating because it feels rare and unique right now. But there's a sense of, ah, oh, like I'm just seeing words. I'm not seeing a face that I will naturally compare myself to. I'm not seeing uh, you know, all these numbers that I start to feel like I'm not good enough or perhaps even I'm better than because of these numbers. And when I see a simple website, I feel the same way. I think, oh, like I can just focus on what he's saying. I'm not getting distracted. I think it also actually will hold people's attention longer because we're so used to scrolling around, but a really simple website with just words forces you to read something to decide if it's worthwhile for you versus, you know, you go to any other website and there's buttons and you kind of get a little skim of it and then you move on. And so I actually think it can be more effective and help people tune into what's really important for them as a consumer. And then as another creator seeing this type of content, it's helping me recognize that I would so much rather be doing that than focused on the flashy because the flashy doesn't spark joy within me. I feel like it's pressure. It exhausts me. It drains me. It makes me not want to participate. And I've struggled with that so much over the years. It was like I was trying to force myself and mold myself into a shape that I am not. And as you know, you might be able to force yourself in, but it's always going to feel tight. It's not going to feel like the right fit. And when you take yourself out of that forced mold, you go back to your original shape anyways. (laughs) Just seeing content like yours, Corbett, I'm like, I I really feel like that's my shape. And why have I been trying to force myself to be you know, the, the Marie Forleo side? Maybe I'm more of the Marie Kondo side. Yeah, <laughs> this is getting heavy. I think it's it's bringing up a lot of realities about humans and and the way that we relate to one another. I you know, faces are this and faces and bodies are this very relatable thing because it it 
digs into that old code that's deep in your brain about recognizing faces and evaluating them. And, you know, it's no wonder that they have been so front and center on social media for so long, but maybe they're oversaturated. And, and, and maybe just because you can evaluate faces quickly doesn't mean that you can't burn out on it. And, and that sense of relief that you get from seeing words instead of faces is, is, is interesting. And I, I think there's more to explore there. You know, another thing that, that I've been thinking about in, in terms of social media and using it in a way that's beneficial to me is not necessarily to feel like I have to reinvent and create something new for each platform. You know, it's exhausting to have to show up to each place and come up with something that is unique for that environment. And I know that, you know, we may find more traction on certain platforms because we're creating something that's just for that platform. But at the same time, if I spend an afternoon creating a piece of content that I feel is good and true and useful to people, then I just think it makes more sense to figure out how to package it for each platform instead of creating something entirely new for each of those platforms. So to me, that means finding ways to turn a blog post into something that can exist on Instagram or maybe even YouTube or maybe even a podcast. I don't know where it will go exactly, but a way for that thing to exist so that I can spend more thoughtful time with each piece of content as opposed to feeling like I just have to show up and and churn out a bunch of interesting things because you know that as you said Whitney when you when you're tired the last thing that you want to do is is to tune into social media and I think when we when we force ourselves to do something that is taking energy from us constantly as opposed to giving us energy over time that's a recipe for burnout. And sure, you might be able to force yourself to do it for months or maybe even years. But I don't think if show if you show up to your work and constantly feel drained from it, that you are ever going to do your best work, nor are you going to be able to do it for long enough to reach those really elevated levels of work that all of us hope to achieve at some point in our careers or our lives, I don't think you'll be able to get to that place because you're constantly either going to have to reinvent because something doesn't feel right, or you're going to end up burning out and really just having to pull the plug on everything. I'm so glad you're speaking to this with such eloquence because I feel like many things you are saying are reflecting things I've been sitting with for so long. And so there's an element of relief and also feeling refreshed at, at another human being expressing things that I've been pondering, right? There's always that magical thing of like, oh, this person is expressing themselves in ways that my inner voice has been expressing that I haven't communicated with any other human. So the thing that I've been feeling for so long, Corbett, is, is a sense of burnout, right? Is this sense of this thing that once brought me joy no longer brings me joy. And then the reticence, the unwinding of the reticence with, I suppose, some sort of societal programming of, but you've put 15 years into your career already. You're going to throw that all away, like that voice of society or my parents or whoever it is, or another voice saying, well, yeah, but you're, you know, you're a man in your mid-40s. What, are you having a midlife crisis? Is this actually what this is? Are you freaking out? Is that why you bought your motorcycle? What the hell's happening? It's been this really interesting process as you're, as you're describing yours, 
reflecting on my own that has been fraught with so much self-inquiry, um, wondering again if I'm in some sort of midlife crisis, if I'm detonating my life, if I'm letting go of the last 15 years of work, and if I am doing that, what's on the other side of it, right? There, there's the excitement and the freedom and I suppose the autonomy of letting it go. But then the other side of it is the fear of like, well, what am I going to do and who am I going to be on the other side of this? And I think that's been my stumbling block in letting go is if I do let it all go, what's, of course, there's no telling what's on the other side. And that can be exhilarating or it can be absolutely terrifying. Yes. And doesn't this just relate back to the ego conversations that we were having before? I mean, I, I of course, there are income considerations, you know, letting go of work sometimes means, well, what happens to that revenue or how will I earn a living in the future? So there's always that. But also, I just think there's a lot of feeling like you have built up this persona and that there's value there and that the value that people see in you is based on that digital persona. And isn't that just sad at the end of the day? Because we are humans. We walk around in these these meat suits as they call it. And it's it's sad if we've if we reduce the complexity of who we are as humans to how many people are following us on on some platform. You know, the work that you have published in the past, I think as long as you archive that, reflect on it, you can always transform that into something that will be even more valuable in the future. But if instead of worrying about tearing down who you've become online, if you start looking forward to who you might be in the future and how this person that you've built for yourself might actually be weighing you down and keeping you from achieving something bigger, I think that's the way to look at it. And, you know, maybe also, gosh, you know, I'm kind of at a loss for where, how to let go and, and realize that the the journey maybe is is what you need to be enjoying at this point as, instead of the markers or the social proof of the accomplishments that you've already made. Yeah, that resonates. It resonates big time because I, I feel like there's so much conditioning of chasing carrots, so to speak, of, you know, you accomplish these certain markers, these certain... Um, I don't even know what you want to call them, you know, uh, guideposts along the way. But ultimately, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm curious about, and I think for the three of us, is instead of chasing those carrots of metrics, vanity metrics, social numbers, and, and believing that those make us what we are, which clearly they do not, what do we replace that with? Do we replace that with perhaps learning how to trust our intuition more? And go with our gut. Is it? Is it like we've been discussing? And Whitney brought up early the, this idea of what sparks joy, what sparks enthusiasm. What are kind of the guideposts for both of you right now in in being led to your creative spark or being led to? Okay, I don't know where I'm going, but I need to pay attention to X to get me there. What are the things you're paying attention to? Well, I always try to peel the layers back and just ask myself what really makes a fulfilling life to me. And, you know, sometimes this can lead down an existential rabbit hole and you can get sucked into philosophy and it can be unproductive in some ways, depending on where your mental state is, I would say. And, and I found that getting existential, if I'm in a period of, in a low period or a 
depression sort of period, that's not maybe the best time to get super existential. But lately, it's been helpful to me just to wonder over time and decade by decade, what am I going to feel like a really fulfilling and and good use of my time on this planet is to me? And I've been able to kind of bring it back to three things personally. And that is, first of all, I want to be healthy. That means that I want to be mentally healthy. I want to feel good and I want to stay fit and trim as well. And I just want to be the kind of person that is treating my body in a way that allows me to do the activities that I want to do for a very long time into my older age. And we've gotten to know, my wife and I live uh, in Mexico every winter for three or four months. And from living down there, we've gotten to know a lot of people who are much older than us, people sometimes in their 70s, even 80s, that we do things with, go golfing with, or play tennis with, or go surfing with. And some people remain incredibly fit and active and mentally vibrant as well to a, a, a very old age. And I want to make sure that that is really the foundation for a good life to me. And then on top of that, I want to be happy. And that means having good times with great people. It means playing and doing fun things. It means building things that I am proud of. And then it also, to me, means traveling and experiencing things in the world and making a good home and, and nesting and enjoying my home. And then the last piece for me, so I mentioned you know, my health, my happiness, and finally, there's some level of being successful. And successful to me, this is the part that I think we all have to be careful about our relationship with. Because really being successful means, I think, some degree of being recognized for the work that you do. And this is where it can become a trap, right? Because is people following you is definitely a marker of them thinking that you are doing something that's interesting and valuable. And so we have to be careful about that relationship. And this is really where I'm spending the most time thinking about how do I define success for myself? There's some level of income and financial stability involved there. And there's also some level of recognition for work that I'm doing. But I think that we have to figure out how to do that in a healthy way. Absolutely. And it's so interesting hearing you talk about success too, Corbett, because that's such a a huge part of why I feel like it's it's a challenge when your work is so for lack of a better term, like it feels like it's dependent on social media. I mean I, I certainly don't think any of our work is. And for us, we, for better or for worse, got into this whole influencer world, you know. And I was reading your your piece on on creators, Corbett, on your website, and you're talking about YouTubers and all that. And it's been really interesting because I'm fascinated by that world. And I've met incredible people and and had amazing experiences by being a content creator. And seeing this uprise of of being an influencer is super fascinating. But unfortunately, it's kind of like become a almost like a virus in some ways, because for both Jason and I, having having had what we've perceived, and, and Jason, I, I'm curious for for your perception 
on this, but I, I think based on our conversations that you and I, Jason, have felt like, again, this virus mentality I'm using because when you spend enough time in a certain line of work, in a certain field, and around other people that are doing that same work, and it's like we all start to adapt to the same viewpoints. And I feel like sometimes that's where I've lost my sense of self because I've taken countless classes at YouTube, countless programs at Facebook and Instagram, and had the pleasure of of listening to these these people that are shaping those worlds, right? That are teaching me how to do things and understand it and all of that. And then us as creators, we got together and we would share tactics and read articles and it became this obsession with optimizing my work. And that's when I started to feel like I was losing who I really was because I was in this world of optimization and this world of basing my success on these metrics. And now I feel like I'm in this place of waking up. And I'm curious if you felt that way too, Corbett, because I imagine it's very similar given that the whole reason I found The Fizzle Show and your work was because I was in that optimization world and looking for more people to guide me on this journey. And I was just like constantly reading books and attending uh, workshops and, and taking courses and, and just like, what can I do to be more successful? And yet over time, I started to realize like there are different versions of success, as you were saying. And me also having this underlying passion and desire to spread the word about wellness, I had to start coming back to that and recognizing that that too is part of my success, if not all of my success, as you're saying. And I think most people would agree that ultimately success is, do you have enough time to spend with your loved ones? Do you have enough years in your life to experience life and and do the small things? And Jason and I started noticing, and I think probably the big inspiration for us developing our business together and this podcast is like starting to think how odd it was that some of the people that we looked up to and saw as successful were the ones that were burnt out and getting like four hours of sleep and feeling obsessed with the hustle. And so now I cringe anytime I hear the word hustle. It makes me so uncomfortable because I equate that as the pressure to do certain things in order to get a certain level of success that I don't even think is for me. How many times have you talked to a an influencer or someone who is Instagram famous or YouTube famous or whatever and, and heard the same thing about how grueling it is and how burnt out they are or have been? I have all the time. <laughs> Yeah. All the time. It's so common. And a lot of times it's the people who are the most successful. People, you know, I have friends from being in this world who are orders of magnitude more successful than the average person. And yet a lot of times they wrestle with more than we do because it's all amplified at that level of success, especially when that success is all about you or your appearance or keeping up this this inflated vision of who you are and portraying that to the world. And unfortunately, the influencers out there, their interest is in making people think that being an influencer is the ultimate so that they can keep the eyeballs and the attention on themselves. 
it's this whole like constructed universe of being famous for being famous and getting people's attention on you. And then you have to continually make your life look more and more amazing. And it just ends up being uh, really exhausting. And, you know, anytime, not just online, but I think anytime you, you listen to some of your favorite musicians from the past or anyone who's been famous from the past, there are a lot of really detrimental things to being famous. And yet now that we have social media, everyone feels like fame is within their grasp. If only they publish the right things, maybe they'll wake up one morning and something will have gone viral and they're the next overnight success story. And and so we're all sort of subconsciously playing this popularity game, almost as if we're back in high school again, except now the stakes aren't just making it to the senior class council. It's maybe that you could reach a million people and and achieve this level of fame that wasn't accessible to people before social media. But it's a it's a a game of smoke and mirrors and it's a, a bit of a shell game, I think, because you do find out that most people who reach that level of quote unquote success end up being the most unhappy. Yes. And thank you for saying all that actually even you phrasing it around how a lot of influencers feel like they have to keep up that game of smoke and mirrors all the time. It's so true. Jason and I have talked at length about how some of our friends or acquaintances have faked so much of who they are, buying followers and posting highly edited photos, or of course, that classic instance of posting a photo and then behind the scenes, it's completely different. And we see these highlight reels and think, oh, well, this person must be this way or live this way. But really, it's just a frame that they captured and wrote a good caption for. And in a way, it makes me so sad because I got so caught up in that game. And now I'm trying to to step away from it. But it's so tempting. As you're saying, Corbett, it draws you in. For instance, I love TikTok. I, that's my favorite entertainment platform. And I have to really be mindful about how often I'm on there because I get so sucked in. But the thing about TikTok that makes me really uncomfortable beyond the privacy concerns, <laughs> as we kind of touched upon when we had Paul Jarvis on the show, but the other bigger almost concern that I have is the obsession with going viral on TikTok is unlike anything I've ever seen because TikTok gives you a much uh, more likely opportunity for that. It's it's truly one of, if not the only instances I've ever seen that aside from like back in the day when you could do Facebook lives and have like your entire audience watching you. It was, you know, so cool. You You were like guaranteed all these people watching your live video for a certain period of time. TikTok is like, hey, you know, there's like a one in five chance that your video is going to go viral. And it it's tempting. And it was tempting for me. It still is to an extent, although I don't I don't create on there as much as I consume. But when I'm consuming, it is almost every single day I see a video of somebody saying, "Oh my god, my video went viral." And then you see like a noticeable change in how they're doing everything because now that they've gone viral, they feel different. They feel like they've succeeded something. Or the other side of it is people just waiting to go viral and they'll write in their captions like, this better go viral. If this doesn't go viral, I'm giving up. And all of these phrasings on TikTok, which 
is where my concern is because people, it just is revealing this obsession and this deep desire to have a ton of people watch your videos as if that's going to change your life. And having been on the other side of that, you know, I don't even use the word viral for myself and my content, but I've had some of my content reach a lot of people, much more so than others, um, other pieces that I've created. And it didn't change me. Like having a quote viral video or viral posts, like it's so temporary. And I think that's the thing that creators don't talk enough about, like going back to the smoke and mirrors concept, whether it's a celebrity with a, you know, one hit wonder or an influencer who gained all these followers, like now what? (laughs) We don't talk enough about what happens after those things. And like Jason's mentioned too, his, his favorite, one of his favorite quotes from a celebrity, is it Jim Carrey, Jason, who says it? Which one? About like, I wish everybody could... Oh, yeah. Could be uh, rich and famous beyond their wildest dreams so they could see that's not the answer. But it really does bring up this concept, though, of, of you know, if, if you get a little bit of attention, a little bit of significance, a little bit of, quote, fame, then the instinct for, I think, a lot of people is to keep chasing that. It's like, if I get a little bit of a hit, right, then I want more. It's, it's, it's very addictive. And I think that the danger is that you find something that, quote, works, whether that's a viral video or maybe even a series of videos or the Today Show calls you up. And then the thought process is, I must keep creating more of this exact thing because this is the thing that's giving me the attention and the significance and the fame that I want. But I think that th- there's a cost for everything. And to me, the cost is ignoring perhaps what, again, our spirit, our soul, our higher self, whatever you may may or may not believe in, if there's a desire to create a certain type of content or work or art in the world, and we ignore that to do what we perceive as continuing the fame and the significance, there's a cost involved because I think at a certain point, your soul or your, your spirit says, hey, this isn't feeding us. Yeah, but it's making money. And like, look how popular we are. You see this? And your soul is like, nah, I don't give a shit about that. I want you to be authentic. I want you to be who you are. What does that even mean? It's like we get so locked into the drugs and the addiction of the fame and the success and the money. We keep creating things to get more of that at the risk of being who we truly are. Yeah. And it's definitely a, it's not a, a good definition of wellness, that's for sure. You know, you mentioned money and money certainly has utility, but the fact is that going viral with one TikTok video or a YouTube video or whatever is not going to make you any money. Uh, you know, how many times have you seen someone show the millions of views that they got to a YouTube video and the $18 that they made in, in advertisements from that video? So I think people have this incorrect view of what any piece going viral for them will do. Of course, there are examples of people who have built huge platforms. And this is, as Whitney was referring to an article that I wrote about how creators are so vital and so desired now that networks and publishers are actually giving deals to people that first establish themselves on social media. And you see people like Sarah Cooper from TikTok, who did the the viral sort of voiceovers of of things that the president was saying and she got a Netflix show from it. And that's that's amazing and and well deserved on her part. She's she's very talented. So it's not as if you can't achieve something meaningful from these platforms, but 
a single viral video won't do anything for you. It's not going to vault you to overnight success. And it's definitely not going to fill the hole you feel in your soul that is needing validation from other people. And, and, you know, if Jim Carrey says that all the fame in the world and money isn't the answer, he's the kind of person that I would believe because very few have experienced more fame or wealth than that. And we hear this over and over again. And yet it's so hard for us to believe. It's almost like we have to see it for ourselves before we believe that fame and wealth aren't the answer. And you know, it's not as if some level of fame and some level of wealth might not be great. I will say that, you know, I enjoy making a little bit more money this year than I did last year because it changes things. I can take a, a different trip or whatever, but it's not as if my day to day is actually really any happier or that I feel any more fulfilled. I absolutely love going to a conference or being out somewhere and being recognized by a stranger because of some work that I published online. I I get a really good feeling from that, especially if I've got a bunch of friends around and they're like, oh my God, you're famous. How cool is that? That feels good for a moment, but that doesn't change the fact that I can sit here in front of my laptop during the week and feel like I'm absolutely worthless or that I can't go on anymore doing what I'm doing because it's it's grueling and it's not necessarily fulfilling me. So wealth and fame can feel good temporarily, but they're definitely not the answer. And this you know, all relates back to trying to have a healthier, more well-rounded relationship with your work and realizing that at the end of the day, you have to enjoy the process of the work itself in order to build a long-term, sustainable world for yourself where you can show up every day and do the thing that you need to do to put food on the table, to make you feel good, and to not burn out in doing it. You really have to love that work. And it has to be, at the end of the day, the reward in itself, aside from any level of fame or money or whatever that you might achieve. I think there's an interesting sort of subsegment. I don't know why it came up for me. But in the entrepreneurial world, I think that there's a lot of sort of shame that I have detected over the years of, oh boy, how do I even say this? Sort of shaming people for choosing to have a, like a nine to five job or a salaried job. There's, there's been a lot of sort of rhetoric over the years of like, oh, why would you trade your freedom for a paycheck? And why would you trade your sovereignty for, you know, for health insurance? And it's interesting, like this year, it's, I mean, it's been a fascinating, bizarre, surreal year, but I, I've actually had thoughts of, you know, I wonder if it would be mentally healthier for me to have something uh, salaried and steady for a while, because I've been just on my own as an entrepreneur for over a decade now, Whitney included, that for the first time in a long time this year in, t in 2020, Corbett, I had these thoughts of like, well, you know what, maybe just to like make things a little bit like more mentally stable, like maybe you could investigate, you know, working with a friend in his company and, and kind of turning that, that, that leaf over and seeing what's there. And then all of these judgments started to come up of like, yeah, but you're giving away your autonomy and your sovereignty and we don't, we don't do that. You know, you're, you've got to be free and you've got to be an entrepreneur, but there's so much, I think, glamour around all of this that we're talking about, of being a content creator, being a social media influencer, being an entrepreneur, that it doesn't really show you the reality 
of specifically the, the, the mental health side to kind of take it back there. You know, I was reading an article um, that we'll link to in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. Our, our website again is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com that talked about sort of the unspoken uh, prevalence of mental health issues in Silicon Valley among startups and entrepreneurs, that it's actually sort of this not so secret secret that people really struggle with depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety. I think this is a much longer question that maybe ties back of this imagery and making entrepreneurship and content creation seem like this fantasy life is so far from the truth in many regards. And I think that can also have a very damaging effect on people's mental health where they get into something and they're like, this is fucking hard. And this is, there's sleepless nights and this is difficult. Should I even be doing this? We, we don't talk enough about that side of the thing. It's, it's too much of the glamorization and not enough of the, I think the, the, the daily mental struggles that can come as a result of choosing a life like that. Absolutely. And I, I think this relates back to, you know, when we were talking about influencers having an interest in making you believe that being an influencer is the greatest thing ever. I think there is also this whole mechanism of people teaching entrepreneurship and wanting you to believe that entrepreneurship is the greatest thing since sliced bread so that you will continue to invest and, and, you know, spend money on those courses and whatever else. And, you know, it's possible that I've been guilty of doing that to some degree. I think that it's also that a lot of people who are successful in entrepreneurship are fairly early in the game. And in those early days, it's all, it is all very fresh and exciting. And a lot of times you are sharing things with the world at a point in your life where you do feel like entrepreneurship is the greatest thing ever, because you're still in that honeymoon phase. You're still in the on the the you know feeling the rush of not having to show up to the office and not having to report to a boss and let's face it most people aren't happy in their jobs either so it's possible that maybe more entrepreneurs struggle with depression and anxiety and so on i certainly have dealt with plenty of that myself and i don't think that it's the right answer for everyone to be an entrepreneur it takes a certain amount of will and resiliency and emotional stability to handle the roller coaster that is entrepreneurship. You know, this this past year, Jason, after 10 plus years of being completely independent, I ended up taking on a fairly big client project. And it was partly because this client project related to a product that I was selling and they were going to be one of the biggest customers for this product. But in taking on this project, I was able to kind of accelerate the timeline and so on. But I'll tell you that working with a team, having a bigger, more stable, more substantial paycheck, and really being appreciated for all the work and all the experience and knowledge that I brought to the table, it ended up being a really great year for me. And, you know, that that meant some days basically spending all day working on this client project and probably on average spending at least a day or two a week on it. And it just ended up being a really nice change for me. So it may not be that there's one answer for anyone. I don't think there's even one answer for each person even for each person at various stages of our lives and our careers. It may be that right now, 
it makes sense for you, Jason. Maybe you take some of the pressure off and and you maybe don't give up all of your entrepreneurial activities, but maybe you give up half of it or or 75% of it and experience that stability and and experience that camaraderie that comes with working for a team and so on and then see how it goes after that. You know, I I don't think that just because we have committed to entrepreneurship at some point that there's no going back or that there isn't some kind of interesting hybrid, especially now that so many people are working remotely. It's not as if working with a client or working on a team, but doing so remotely would necessarily change your day to day that much. And, uh, you know, maybe you'd be able to affect bigger change than you can on your own. Yeah, that's beautifully stated. I think as we sort of maybe are coming closer to the the wrap up of this episode. I want to touch on uh, self-worth for a minute with both of you, because I think that there's an overarching theme here of finding our true north as creators, as artists, as entrepreneurs, somehow finding a level of autonomy and authenticity with what we're creating, maybe tuning out the noise. But I think part and parcel of that is this idea of self-worth. And, and curious, Corbett, if you have struggled with self-worth issues specifically, and if so, what are some techniques, strategies, things you practice to remediate that and, and maybe bring you back to a clearer focus of who you truly are? Yeah. And, and you know, it, being in my mid-40s now, things have changed quite a bit. I think that some of those questions of self, self-worth in your 20s and, and 30s, and, and for some people, you know, their whole lives, but certainly earlier in your career, I think some of it comes from literally wondering what your value is in the world and trying to identify what your worth is. Not that self-worth has to come from external factors. You know, the the greatest source needs to be internal and from the people that you really value in your lives. But there is some aspect of fulfilling your life's purpose that involves finding something that you can be good at and that can be really valuable to a broader set of people beyond just yourself and your family. So self-worth is interesting. And, you know, again, with publishing things publicly or trying to reach a broader audience, there's so much that can be wrapped up into it. And you can end up feeling like you're putting your self-worth on the line every time you publish something new or every time you share something new because you're waiting to see if people react to it. And if they don't react to it, there's this tendency to feel like, oh my God, I'm a failure. Even though really your worth is is determined by the the total of the things that you've done. And it's really determined by, again, how you feel about yourself and how the people closest to you relate to you and so on, and not necessarily what strangers think, especially because there are so many trolls and and a-holes out there in the world online when things are done anonymously. So I've struggled with it. It's something that I think about a lot. And I think it's also something that tends, for me at least, to improve year after year as I become more confident in the things that I've done and as I care less about what strangers think about what I've done. Yeah. And I, that confidence side of thing is, is such a huge element of this. And I found that having conversations like this with other creators and entrepreneurs is really helpful because going back to this idea of smoke and mirrors, and also, as you, you said, Corbett, that honeymoon phase that we can go in of wow, like I get to control my life more. I mean, I remember that so 
vividly when I left my last full-time job. It was like, oh, I, I can do this. Like, this is really great. Why isn't everybody doing this? And for many years, I was coaching other people on, on working for themselves. And um, I still have a big passion for monetization and helping people figure out how to monetize. But what shifted is helping them do it in a way that feels really authentic to them and and is based in their own confidence versus doing it the way everybody else is doing it. But as I said earlier, not feeling like it's right for you. And I think the more that we can talk openly about this, the more that you realize that it's okay to do things differently and pave your own path. And and it's okay to go through all these different phases. Also, as you said, Corbett, it, it's so true that just because Jason has been a chef all these years doesn't mean that he has to continue being a chef. He can pause and he can go back to it if he wants. He can completely throw it out and do something different. And I, I think actually that's one of those really simple parts of life, yet it feels complex. It's easy to forget that we're allowed to change and we're going to change whether we want to or not. I don't know why there's this idea that we have to just pick a path and stick to it. And if we don't stick to it, there's shame involved or something. <laughs> like, Who cares? I think it's been interesting for me as I've been reshaping and redefining who I am. I think part of me thought it would just be like, one day I would go from this person to that person. But the truth is, it's an ongoing transition. And I might transition again into something more radical at some point, and that's okay. And so taking that pressure off myself to like make a black and white leap from one phase to another, and then simply say, I'm constantly in transition. <laughs> and I don't know how long this period is going to last or, or take, and that's all right. And I don't think people really even need us to be one way or another. I think we're just more used to seeing people in one light or another. Like in Jason's case, they're used to him being a chef, but they're still going to love you, Jason, no matter what you do, because ultimately the people that care about you care about you at the core, not you as in whatever job you're working or career path you're on. Yeah. And I was, I was really enamored by the stories I heard from Matthew McConaughey recently as he was on his book tour, he, he wrote a book called Green Lights, and he's done a lot of interviews. And he went through a metamorphosis that changed him from being typecast as this happy-go-lucky stoner character into doing a string of movies that are really profound, and you know, one of which earned him an Oscar nomination. And really changing the way that the the world thought of him. But in order to achieve that metamorphosis, he basically had to go unemployed for two years, while he had to turn down all the opportunities that fit into his old mold, and continued to look for and to try to convince people to give him the opportunities that he knew were inside him. And just how interesting it is to think about if he went through his career only doing one type, we never would have gotten to see the Dallas Buyers Club or, or Mud or his role in True Detectives on HBO, all of these incredible performances. So, you know, I think inside of us, we're always learning new things and, and building a new foundation 
that's underneath. And in order to use that new foundation and become a higher expression of ourselves and what we want to see in the world, sometimes we have to take a leap. Sometimes we have to emerge from a chrysalis, as as you were saying earlier, Jason. And there's no doubt that that's scary. You know, becoming an entrepreneur, God, remember how scary that was, just taking a leap from, you know, doing a full-time job to betting on yourself. And now that you have bet on yourself and you've had some success, it's scary to think about throwing that success away, quote unquote, throwing it away to leap and hope that there's another net there. But just have confidence that the skills that you've learned, the relationships that you've built, and the things that you've learned to be true about yourself are all going to help you achieve the next thing. And if you speak the truth, there are going to be people out there willing to listen. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed today's podcast because this is a rare opportunity online when most things are in such soundbite form and so focused on what's shareable, it's a rare opportunity for us to get to actually sit down and have a deep conversation about the things that mean the most to us from a wellness and happiness and mental health standpoint at the end of the day. Well, thank you for acknowledging that because it actually comes full circle into this whole conversation. Fizzle was actually a huge inspiration for me uh, not just as an entrepreneur learning from you guys, but when we were developing this show, so many people wanted us to make it short. And we were advised by podcast experts like, oh, just you know, keep it bite-sized, like you're saying, make it 10 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, but God forbid you go beyond 30 minutes, you know. And of course, there's so many examples of people doing the hour-long shows like Fizzle and Smart Passive Income was another one that I listened to for a long while. But we just kept hearing all these people telling us to make it shorter and different and saying all of these things and Jason and I would discuss and we're thinking, well, let's just record and see where it goes. And that's what we did. And, and we naturally fell into this rhythm of making our episodes like 90 minutes long on average. And it's so interesting whenever we invite guests on the show, because some people like think it's bizarre. We want to book them for two hours because we're used to this soundbite world, as you're saying, Corbett. We're used to uh, planning everything. We had a guest on recently that was uncomfortable, but willing to do a show that wasn't structured at all because we don't do much planning. We we know a bit about our guests, but we don't think about what we're going to ask or where we're going to go aside from some loose ideas. And that resonates with us. That feels good to us. That's what makes this easy. And we had to push through these fears that we wouldn't be accepted, that people wouldn't um, want to listen. And, and another part of Fizzle that really inspired me too is how at the beginning of your shows, you guys are just like laughing, goofing off, talking about things. You know, you'd read the title of the episode and it'd be like seven ways to come up with a good title for your product or whatever, right? And so that's what I would listen to the show. But you guys would be talking for like 10 or 15 minutes about something completely random for a while and laughing and making jokes. And I loved that because then I got to know each of you and I felt more drawn in and it felt more special versus other entrepreneurship shows I used to listen to would just cut right to the chase and they felt so formulaic. And the host sometimes, there's one in particular I won't mention, but but a really popular entrepreneurship show I used to listen to, 
I started to lose interest because it always sounded the same. <laughs> like I knew what questions he was going to ask. I knew, you know, he had his his voice on for the show, but I didn't feel like it was the real him. And Jason and I wanted to make a show that felt like the real us, even at the risk that we wouldn't get people as many people listening because they might want a 10 minute or 30 minute show. That's okay. That's not what our show is. Our show is is very organic. And I, I think that's why we've continued to do it for, you know, close to 200 episodes and, and all of that. Whereas so many people give up because I think perhaps they're either second guessing themselves the whole time or they're, they're trying to fit themselves into some mold that doesn't feel right for them. And why should they continue? Yeah. And, and true breakthroughs and real creativity that leads to something that hasn't been done before has to involve a, a, an enormous amount of courage to do things that other people aren't willing to do, are too scared to do, or because, you know, some some elites or some gurus tell you that this is the way things are supposed to be done. But y- you won't achieve the level of breakthrough necessary to to get people's attention and to really explore the bounds of your abilities and, and creativity without doing something that involves a lot of courage. I just, I think there's so, there's so much in this episode. It was so, it was so rich Corbett in the sense that I want to reiterate how many things you've said that have just resonated so deeply with, with my process and where I'm at kind of tucked away in my chrysalis. And I'm sure there are a lot of listeners too that have tuned in today that are, are really deeply, just deeply vibing with everything you've said. And for anyone who wants to really just go deeper into your journey, I mean, Corbett, I'm going to be really just following along with how your personal evolution and metamorphosis takes shape. And I, I just want to acknowledge you for the the courageousness, the authenticity, the vulnerability. These things can often be like, quote, buzzwords, but you are really just bringing who you are to the table. You don't know where all this is leading, but you're trusting it, as you said, that the net will appear. And I just want to for, you know, personally acknowledge you for not necessarily giving me permission to keep going, but it's almost just a level of comfort in hearing where you are and how deep you're in it and that you just keep going, not knowing where it's leading. It's just tremendously inspiring to me. So I just want to personally thank you for being here and and bringing your presence and your authenticity to the show. Well, th- thank you so much. And, and thanks for giving me and, and the audience uh, the space to explore these things. It's refreshing and I really appreciate it. So dear listener, if, if you want to follow up with Corbett, you can go to his website. We'll link to that in the show notes, corbettbar.com. And we will uh, have all of his social feeds. We don't know what he'll be posting if anything, but uh, to keep up with his journey and his metamorphosis, his personal and professional evolution, we will have all of his links in our show notes. Again, it's wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Just go there and click on the podcast section. It will take you to the show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes. And to connect with us, you can shoot us an email directly, hello at wellevator.com. And you can follow us on all of the social media networks. Again, we're not really sure what evolution we're going to be going into with our uh, our social feeds, but it's all an experiment and we are all doing our best and we would love to hear more about your journey. If you're in a similar space of reinvention, metamorphosis, or evolution, shoot us an email, shoot us a DM. And again, we thank you for your listenership, your support, your love, and thanks again for getting uncomfortable with us today. 
Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.